tonight to tell you the truth, because I've been following up something, and the most of you will remember the report which we gave you last week about four teenagers in Greenhead, Indiana, who said that they were buzzed by flying saucers. Now, that story interested me very much, and, uh, and after going over the thing, I decided that it would stand a little bit of checking. For one thing, I didn't uh, exactly believe all of it, so I must have been now that I believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it, believe a great deal more of it. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Now we finally return to the story of Betty and Barney. We will finally start to get to the core of the tale, the events that have been so controversial from the time they were first recounted over 60 years ago, and will be for many more years yet to come. As you know, we've been covering the fascinating events that occurred in the White Mountains of New Hampshire on the night of the 19th and the 20th of September, 1961. Betty and Barney contacted the U.S. Air Force and Major Paul W. Henderson of the 100th Bomb Wing at the Peace Base filed a Project Blue Book report regarding their sighting. They had also, on the advice of NICAP, revisited their route on that evening many times to try and identify the exact location of the incident, but with no success. Now we are going to get into the shocking curveball involved in the case, and the events that have caused astonishment, amazement, and plenty of controversy over the last 60 years. There is a reason that the Hill case has been one of the best-known and controversial UFO cases of all time, and tonight, we'll finally start to get to the bottom of it. Well, folks, it's been a long time since I've done an episode that's not been a News of the Dam during an interview, and it feels good to be back here and being able to present Another piece in the puzzle of the Betty Ann Barney Hill case. Now, even after doing this one, we probably got another two episodes to go, but I guarantee you we'll get Betty and Barney Hill's saga finished before we finish season four. That's just the way it's going to be. But it feels really good to be back in the studio and writing and recording something and not just having an interview for you or, or having news of the damned. I love having the guests on. I love having the interviews, but... I feel the show works best when we've got a mix of both. So I do have a couple other small notes to make. One of them is I wanted to congratulate Scott, Matt, and Dave over at the Old 77. The boys have recently recorded and released their 100th episode, so very well done, my friends, and it's not easy. I think, I don't know exactly what the number is today, but I know a few years ago when I started on the podcast... The medium average for podcasts was seven episodes. It was like most podcasts quit after by their seventh episode. So to get to 100 is something else. Now, obviously, I could have been over 100 episodes now myself, but I don't count all the bonus episodes. It's just the way I am. It's like the mainline episodes, and then we've got the bonus episodes. So I think in all reality, it's something like it's over 120 episodes if you count in the bonus episodes. But hey, it's me. I'm weird that way. And it will be cool when we get to our 100th episode here on the Paranormal Sun. So that was the first one. The second one is that, as I said, for those of you who may not know or didn't hear the announcement, I've relaunched The Fortunate Sun. 
Now, that's going to be an interview-only project for the time being. It's just going to be easier for me and uh, a lot simpler to edit interviews with great people around the world and do that than try and get on the mic and find new topics and subjects to talk about. So I've dropped the first episode of that, which was with Mark Reed from the Zen Sandwich podcast, who I've had the pleasure of being on the Zen Sandwich before. And Mark is based in Japan, originally from the U.S. We had a great talk about some of the differences with the Japanese lifestyle, why Mark went to Japan, what his journey's been like. We compared a bit of notes of being Americans abroad. And of course, we talked about Mark's excellent podcast, the Zen Sandwich podcast. And yes, uh, it's not one of those things where I just say it because I've been on Mark's show and he's been on my show. I really enjoy his podcast. That's why I promote it. It's the same with uh, the old 77. Yes, I've been on their podcast. Yes, the boys are big supporters, but I genuinely enjoy what they do. And there's another podcast out there. I'm not going to play his promo in this episode, but I will be playing it in the upcoming, the next bonus episode we do. And it is a very nice gentleman named Mike Messner. And Mike has got an excellent podcast about Gordon Lightfoot called Carefree Highway Revisited. And it's a really good podcast as he goes through the Gordon Lightfoot catalog and goes one song at a time and gives feedback, has a guest on, and they talk about each different song that he's done so far. Really good podcast, and Mike's a history teacher and uh, really puts a lot of care into his podcast. So it's definitely something good and something that you should check out. But like I say, uh, I will be playing a promo upcoming so you can hear from Mike. Now, for those of you who have been long-term listeners of the show, and those of you that know that I like to talk about something called synchronicities, and that I've had many of them in my life, but especially in the last couple years, I've had another couple. One of them, you're going to have to wait, because there will be more out there about it very soon. I just don't want to like let the cat out of the bag just yet. But the other one was directly involving last week's episode with Susie. So, as you know, Susie has passed on, and Susie is no longer with us. Now, again, if you've listened to that episode now, you'll also know that Susie and I both had a big affinity for Art Bell, and when I was in my early 20s, late teens, early 20s especially, I listened to a lot of Art Bell's programs overnight. Well, when I was doing that episode last week and I was editing it, there's always a part of me, don't get me wrong, no matter what I'm doing in studio, there's always a part of me saying, in the back of my mind going, you need to get this out, you need to get this episode out, And I did have a bit of that last week because I was saying it's been a while since you've had an episode out. You need to get this released. But there was something else, and it was something, I I don't know how to put it, but it was more. It it, It wasn't that normal pressure that I feel to get shows out for you, the audience. It was just something else, and it was telling me, you've got to get this show released now. Like, you've got to get it done and get it out. And so, yeah, I I nearly, honestly, folks, I nearly stopped about three or four times and picked it up in the morning, but there was just this something telling me, you need to get it done, you need to get it done. And again, this was mental. I wasn't hearing things here in the studio telling me to do it. It was just on a mental level, I had something telling me to get this done. So I got it done. Obviously, great episode, and I enjoyed the recording, I enjoyed the editing, 
And it reminded me a lot of, one, the conversation I had with Susie, but number two, why I do the show and why I enjoy what I do and that I get to do this. It's not a, uh, yeah, don't get me wrong. It takes up time. I'm not saying that it doesn't. But on the other hand, it's something that I get to do that I am able to do that so many people don't get to follow their passions, don't get to chase their dreams, and I've been able to. Well, anyway, the next day came around, and I was thinking about the episode and appreciative that I'd gotten it out, and I was looking in my feed, so I think it was my Instagram feed, and lo and behold, here we are from Coast to Coast AM, R.I.P. Art. So it happened to be the anniversary of when Art Bell passed away, and that date would have been the date that I was in studio getting the episode done and edited and released, and I had that nagging voice telling me in the back of my head, get this released, get it done, JT, get it out there. So yeah, you can't make this kind of stuff up, folks. Uh, yeah, everyone's different, and I get that there'll be some people out there that will say, oh, that's not a big deal, but... um to me, some of these synchronicities that I've had happen to me in the last couple years have just been astounding. And this was yet another one. And I kind of, when I saw this feed, I kind of did look around to kind of say, Susie, is that you? Or, or are you there? Are you having a good chuckle? Because Susie had mentioned that um, when Art passed, it left a big gap for a lot of people. And Art, Art wasn't uh, active as far as doing his broadcasting anymore at the time he passed away. He did do several other segments after he left Coast to Coast. He did Midnight in the Desert, and he did a show called Dark Matter. And I can't remember what the last one was he did. It could have been Midnight in the Desert. But anyway, yeah, I was just astounded that here we go, another synchronicity. And this was also... uh. Like I say, I managed to get Art's little clip in there for Susie, and it just blew me away. The timing was just something else. So yeah, folks, that's the synchronicity that I had this week, and um, yeah, just really fitting. So yeah, again, Susie, wherever you are, <laughs> I hope you had a good laugh. I definitely, that one kind of blew my mind, because I was just sitting out there in the morning having a cup of coffee and starting my day and here we go oh r.i.p art so yeah something else so folks uh, yeah that's about it um i do have one other announcement to make thank you very much to the generous scott in missouri for becoming a patreon sponsor of the paranormal sun uh something that i really do need to revamp like i say i need to get through and revisit it but in the meanwhile i do have some things to send to you scott and thank you so much for supporting the program. It does mean a lot to me. Folks, we're not going to do a News of the Damned in this episode because the stuff for Betty and Barney is about an hour plus. So we're just going to keep this nice and clean. This is just going to be Betty and Barney Hill. And then I'll do you a separate News of the Damned, hopefully over this weekend. I planned to do one last weekend, but I got caught up with doing stuff for The Fortunate Son as well. But with that, my friends, one other thing that you should be aware of, this is a different style of The Paranormal Sun. And when I say that, yes, I'm reading my script, but because I'm recounting some of the things that happened, the volume kind of jumps a bit. And just be aware, once you get into the hypnosis session, once you get into that part and you get a little ways into that, you start getting some real emotional parts 
where the voice will jump quite a bit. So I'm just warning you, forewarning you, so you don't have your earphones in and you have the volume up and then all of a sudden you get blasted by hearing me yelling. So just keep that in mind. It's something that is, like I say, a bit new. But going forward, when we do things like this, especially a case of this magnitude, I'm going to do a bit of dramatization. So hopefully you enjoy it. Let me know. One other thing, uh, those of you who are wondering how you can kind of keep up with what's happening with the Paranormal Sun, you can follow on Instagram. And also, another thing you can do is you can go and join the Facebook group. Now, why is that important? Well, I started a poll earlier this uh, about a week ago in the Paranormal Sun Facebook group, and I basically said once we get through Betty and Barney Hill and that, what's the next thing you want me to cover over? And I gave people about five, six choices. And at the time of this recording, the last time I checked, I should say, John D was the front runner. But there were some other things. There's a zone kind of like the Bermuda Triangle in Mexico on the land. That's one of the other options. Uh, the There's another option of a strange anomaly in Cambodia and a few others. So if you want to be a bit more active, if you actually want to be able to drive the content on the show, hey, hop in there and, and check it out. So I've still got plenty of interviews recorded for the program, but I don't know if we'll do any more this season. Basically, I want to get Betty and Barney Hill out of the way, and then we'll see. I would like to wrap the show up with something as I usually do. The last show of the season is usually not UFO related. It's usually some kind of ancient mystery, something like that, like I did Nan Madal before. So we will see. Uh, but yeah, if you want a bit more input, that's where you can go and do it. So with all of that being said, like I say, no news of the damned this evening. I do hope that you enjoy this, and we are starting to get closer and closer to the core story behind Betty and Barney Hill, and this one really starts kicking it up a little bit of a notch as far as why this case has been so controversial over the years. I really do hope you enjoy it, my friends. Take care, stay safe, go and get yourself a nice drink and a snack, and sit back and relax and listen to this episode of the Betty and Barney Hill saga, number three in the series. And like I say, we're probably marching towards at least five. Take care, my friends. I'll talk to you soon. Good evening. I'm David Schoenbrunn. We're gathered together tonight to hear an extraordinary story, one of the most fascinating stories in the history of man. Whether it is true or false is something that you will judge after you've heard the story and a discussion of it by a panel of scientists and science editors. The story will be told by the two people who have lived it. First, Mr. Barney Hill and his wife, Betty Hill. The long commuting drive from Portsmouth to Boston, the night work schedule, the separation from his sons who were living in Philadelphia with his former wife, the doubts about the Indian head experience, and the problem with his ulcers all began to take their toll on Barney. His condition was further complicated by the recurrence of elevated blood pressure, creating a vicious circle whereby he could not successfully remedy the last condition without the removal of the other problems, and vice versa. Another disturbing symptom began at this time, more of an annoyance than anything else, but contributing to his general problem. A series of warts began to develop, in an almost geometrically perfect circular ring in the area of his groin. While they were a minor problem, they added to his concerns. By the summer of 1962, Barney's exhaustion and general malaise 
prompted him to seek a psychiatrist for his overall condition, entirely aside from the traumatic experience he and Betty had had in the White Mountains. He did not associate his need for therapy with the UFO incident, feeling mainly that the conflict over his father-son relationship was at the base of his problems, the long distance to Philadelphia making it impossible to be a devoted father. The physician treating him for elevated blood pressure and ulcers recommended a distinguished psychiatrist in nearby Exeter, New Hampshire, Dr. Duncan Stevens, and the long process of therapy began during the summer of 1962. At first, the incident at Indian Head was ignored altogether by Barney. He did not emphasize it in his talks with Dr. Stevens, because it seemed to be only a minor part of his anxiety, a sidelight to the other conditions, and he concentrated on his general emotional and social problems. With the help of Dr. Stevens, he told Barney that there were many unusual and interesting details to his case, including the circumstances of Barney's interracial marriage in a New England town, a sociological condition that could not be ignored. He pointed out that both Barney and Betty were making a remarkably good adjustment, that their inherent goodwill and honesty, as well as their contribution to the community life, were remarkable. Both in and out of therapy, Barney increasingly examined memories of his background and his youth. As he did, his curiosity increased as to why he reacted so violently to the object as it hovered over him in the sky at Indian Head on that autumn night. What confused Barney most about the incident was that he was never inclined to panic, never afraid of facing a traumatic crisis. This attitude was reflected when he walked steadily across the road and out onto the field toward the enormous object, carrying his binoculars, on that night of September 19, 1961. It was not until he put binoculars to his eyes and focused on the craft that he panicked and ran to the car. The unexplained panic that he knew to be foreign to his general reactions plagued him, in addition to the curtain of absolute blankness that descended at that moment. For a full year from the summer of 1962 through the following summer of 1963, Barney continued working through his problem with Dr. Stevens, but never emphasizing and only briefly considering the UFO incident. Barney felt at first, and the doctor seemed to agree, this was peripheral to the case, a side issue that could only be considered as a sudden shock in a recent period of his life, rather than a deep, underlying cause of his symptoms. Further, Betty was not experiencing as much distress as he was over the incident, aside from the vivid recall of her dreams that fired her curiosity. They had both taken Dr. Quirk's suggestion to relax for a while, and temporarily to put aside the idea of hypnosis as a means of clarifying their memories. One evening in September 1963, the Hills were invited by their church discussion group to relate, for the first time at any kind of gathering, their experience with the UFO in the White Mountains. They had mentioned the incident to their minister, who along with others in the church had a growing curiosity about the subject in the light of increasing unidentified flying object reports throughout New England, and especially in New Hampshire and Vermont. Because of these reports, Barney and Betty felt that people might be willing now to accept their story without the usual skepticism. They had mixed feelings about the idea, as usual, although Betty was now becoming convinced that their story should be told. If it should represent a landmark in the history of the phenomenon, did they have a right to confine it to themselves? At the discussion group meeting was another invited speaker, Captain Ben Sweat, from the nearby Peace Air Force Base, who was well known in that area for his study of hypnosis, a subject which, together with the story the Hills would tell, might make up an interesting evening. After the captain listened to our story as much as we could tell, 
With the blanking out of memory that took place at, at that moment at Indian Head, he was interested that the account was cut off, as if by a cleaver at that point, Barney later recalled. We mentioned the fact that Hoveman, Jackson, and Major MacDonald had recommended hypnosis, and as a man well acquainted with it himself, the captain agreed that this might be a good idea, especially if it were conducted by a psychiatrist. As a layman, he didn't dream of doing it himself. We too were aware of the danger of indiscriminate hypnosis, but it did stimulate our interest in the idea, which had been dormant for a long time. At his next session with Dr. Stevens, Barney brought up the subject. The doctor told him that even though the UFO incident might be a sidelight, they should leave no stone unturned in examining Barney's anxieties. Dr. Stevens also indicated to Barney that simultaneous hallucination, to say nothing of simultaneous amnesia, was highly unlikely, although there is a rare psychological phenomenon known as a folle adieu, in which two people develop a psychotic condition in which their beliefs and delusions are similar. This also seemed unlikely, since most of the conditions for this phenomenon did not seem to be present. Except for the possibility of this one traumatic experience, there were no particular symptoms mutually reflected in their constant, day-to-day -day relationships as husband and wife over the entire period that they had been married. The next person to become involved in the story of Betty and Barney Hill would take it from a case of curiosity to one of the most well-known and controversial cases of purported interaction with alien visitors in the annals of the UFO phenomena. Dr. Stevens found it advisable at this point to have the opinion of Dr. Benjamin Simon, a well-known Boston psychiatrist and neurologist. Dr. Simon was a graduate of Stanford University with a master's degree and received his MD from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. While an undergraduate at John Hopkins University, he became interested in hypnosis when he served as a subject in some experiments conducted by the psychology department there. During his psychiatric and neurological training, he developed proficiency in techniques and procedures. While on a Rockefeller Foundation fellowship in Europe in 1937 and 1938, he further extended the knowledge which was to prove so useful a few years later. During World War II, he found it a very useful adjunct in the treatment of military psychiatric disorders, first as consultant psychiatrist to the General Dispensary in New York, and later on a very extensive scale, as Chief of Neuropsychiatry and Executive Officer at Mason General Hospital, the Army's chief psychiatric center in World War II. The responsibility of bringing treatment to 3,000 patients a month made necessary the use of all the varied types of treatment, especially those which could be used in briefer therapy and with groups. Hypnosis and its companion therapeutic procedure, narcosynthesis, the so-called truth serum, fulfilled these requirements expeditiously and became well-established as therapeutic agents. When John Huston produced his outstanding motion picture documentary on psychiatric treatment, Let There Be Light, at the Mason General Hospital, Colonel Simon served as advisor and personally did the scenes involving hypnosis and narcosynthesis. For his work as Chief of Neuropsychiatry and Executive Officer, he was awarded the Legion of Merit and the Army Commendation Medal. Mason General Hospital and its personnel received the Meritus Service Unit Award. After leaving military service in 1946, Dr. Simon maintained his interest in these special procedures, though their place in civilian psychiatric practice at the time was much more restricted. In his office in Boston, Dr. Simon received a call from Barney Hill early in December of 1963. 
Since the referral was made by Dr. Stevens, Dr. Simon set up an appointment for a consultation on December the 14th. Barney and Betty Hill left Portsmouth well before 7 o'clock on the morning of December the 14th, driving in and parking their car near Dr. Simon's offices with a comfortable margin of time before their appointment at 8 o'clock. They approached the consultation with mixed feelings of curiosity, nervousness, and some apprehension, although these feelings were tempered with the relief that comes from taking a decisive step and action in the direction they thought would help. Betty's anxiety was, of course, based on her dreams. When the time discrepancy between when they could last recall near Indian Head and regaining consciousness driving was pointed out to them, her anxiety had grown markedly. The thought that they might have been more than just dreams was critically upsetting to her, although less emotional in her general reaction than Barney and more stoic. Her fear that the dreams might be based on reality was affecting her work as well as her composure. At one time, she confided in her superior for the state welfare department, with whom she frequently had dinner after Barney had left for his night shift work. I gave her the description of the dreams I had written down, Betty later recalled, and we used to talk them over. This must have gone on over a period of several months. And finally one night, she said to me, How do you know these dreams are not real? She said that every indication and reaction I was having pointed to the direction that all this might have been reality, and that I should be willing to accept that as a possibility. But after that, I began to give it serious consideration. Going into Dr. Simon's office that day gave me some confidence that I could clear this up, to remove this thing that was eating at me all the time, to get some kind of confirmation, one way or the other. In other words, folks, closure. Betty, who had never been in therapy, was faintly amused at the fact that she had often escorted some of her welfare cases into psychiatric clinics, and now the tables were about to be turned. Barney, whose therapy had been continuing for many months, was curious about the possibility that they might be going to undergo hypnosis. He was anxious to see if indeed he could be hypnotized and what sort of method would be used to accomplish this. So Barney was curious. Barney at a later date recalled his impressions of that first visit. Walking into his office where Dr. Simon holds his consultations, I found it very impressive. It was nicely carpeted with green, along with a green pad on the desk. It was comfortable and quiet. He completely captivated me to the point that I felt this was a person I could trust. It was an instantaneous thing with me that I immediately liked him, and this was also what was to help me overcome my anxiety. Betty and I were together, of course, at the first consultation. Betty, too, thought that the office was attractive and the doctor impressive. I had full confidence in him, even before we met, because I looked him up in the biographical directory of the American Psychiatric Association. The entry there convinced me of his competence and professional standing. To me, this was so important because of the unusual nature of our case. Dr. Simon was somewhat surprised to note the interracial marriage of his patients. He then began with a general history of their problems, highlighted, of course, by the incident at Indian Head two years before. Dr. Simon was aware that Barney had been undergoing therapy for his anxiety state and that it was increasingly apparent that the experience with the UFO was an important facet in his failure to respond adequately to his treatment. He was similarly aware of the nightmares leading to Betty's anxiety. It became quickly apparent that both Barney and Betty needed treatment. Treatment would be centered on their anxiety reaction with the apparent amnesia for part of the experiences in the White Mountain as the point of emphasis. There were practical questions for both of them. The matter of cost was something they could not ignore. 
Their combined income was reasonably comfortable, but with two of them in therapy, they realized, there would be a severe strain on the budget, and the job of psychiatric treatment could not be accomplished over a short period of time. In addition to the fees that a competent psychiatrist would set, there was the not inconsiderable cost of driving to Boston each week for a double session. This was serious business to them, not a whim or a fancy, and they accepted it as such. The unidentified flying object aspect was a secondary matter to Dr. Simon, because his first and major job was to determine the treatment and aid the patients in overcoming their psychiatric problems. The UFO experience fell within the limits of the material he had heard and the little he had read about the subject. This secondary aspect of the case was most interesting, and he foresaw a rather prolonged and intensive period of therapy that might be unique. One of the major objectives, of course, was to open up the amnesia, and since this symptom responds particularly well to hypnosis, the doctor decided to use it to initiate the treatment. The general attitude of Dr. Simon to UFOs was neutral, tempered by a hard-headed realism that such objects could exist as experimental aircraft or foreign reconnaissance craft not yet announced to the layman, or simply mistaken aircraft or stars. He had no personal interest in the subject and was willing to accept whatever authoritative sources said about it. He didn't realize the amount of controversy involved, even among the scientific community. Nor was he familiar with NICAP, whose report the Hills brought with them to give the doctor a full background on their experience, as documented by Walter Webb. At the consultation that morning, Dr. Simon evaluated their cases and gave an outline of his treatment plan. Because the purported amnesia was a central factor in their distress, he planned to begin by using hypnosis to penetrate the amnesia. If this is what the condition turned out to be, and to proceed according to the developments. Dr. Simon also decided to record the therapeutic sessions on tape, both for an accurate record and for probable use to bring the material into consciousness under controlled conditions. This decision would have far-reaching and long-lasting impacts, not only to Betty, Barney, and Dr. Simon, but this would shake the field of ufology to its foundations. During hypnosis, the incidents described in the trance can be wiped from conscious memory. Conversely, on instruction from the doctor, they can be recalled. For the most real reproduction of the trance experience, the patient can listen to his own voice on tape and analyze it with the doctor, step by step. Whether the dreams were in fact real, or just dreams, was of course foremost in Betty's mind. For nearly two years now, the answer to this question had been gnawing away at her. For Barney, as he had already told Betty, he was hoping that for once and for all, she would accept the fact that her experience in regard to an abduction was no more than an intense series of dreams. The trauma of the low-level sighting on Route 3 was enough for Barney. To carry the incident on to the possible abduction, just the thought of it was more than he cared to think about. To the doctor, the uniqueness of the story remained nothing more than the backdrop against which he would have to work. Barney and Betty Hill, like most laymen, had only a smattering of knowledge about hypnosis. Dr. Simon explained to them that the process was a close relationship between the doctor and the patient, in which the hills would be brought into a condition like sleep. There would be no danger of harm to them. They should have nothing to fear. In a lecture some years ago at the New York Academy of Medicine titled Hypnosis, Fact and Fancy, Dr. Simon covered the entire field of hypnosis and its function in medical and psychiatric practice, pointing out that only in the last several decades had hypnosis received significant attention as a medical practice. In the lecture, Dr. Simon asked, Who can hypnotize? 
who can be hypnotized, who cannot be hypnotized. Any intelligent adult with appropriate knowledge of technique can hypnotize. Any intelligent adult and most children above the age of seven can be hypnotized. In fact, children are more easily hypnotized than adults. Very psychotic individuals and the mentally handicapped are very resistant to hypnosis. Most of these people cannot be hypnotized. 95% of hypnotizable persons can attain the first stage, but only about 20% can be brought to the third or somnambulistic stage. Willpower plays no part whatever in hypnosis, and the belief that hypnotizability is a manifestation of a weak will is false. The factors that influence hypnotizability are the intelligence of the individual, their conscious willingness, and the degree of unconscious resistance or submissiveness. The latter are not always manifest on the surface. Contrary to the common fears of the public, termination of the hypnotic state is not generally a problem. Universally, the suggestion for waking results in waking. There need be only the added suggestion of feelings of comfort and freedom from anxiety. In the rare instances where the subject does not wake on suggestion, if left alone, they will fall into a natural sleep and wake up in a matter of hours. Dr. Simon closed the lecture by stating his conviction that hypnosis should not be used in any field beyond research, medical practice, and dentistry. As the Hills were soon to discover, they were in a cautious, medically conservative hands. With the doctor's basic attitude neutral to the UFO subject, if not prejudiced against it, they were to run into a stiff test of whatever beliefs they now had as a result of their experience at Indian Head. Betty, in spite of her growing interest in the phenomena, was willing to accept the truth of the matter, whatever it was. Barney, hopeful to clear up the anxiety symptoms that were seriously disturbing his life, was at the point where he wanted, above all, for the truth to come out, regardless of what it may be. None of them were to realize that the truth was so elusive, even with the desire and the most advanced means at the time to find it. With the Hill's story and Walter Webb's six-page report in hand, Dr. Simon found himself interested in the uniqueness of the case and the unusual data accompanying it. The story, to all appearances, seemed reliable and valid. He noted that Webb's detailed opinion was based on an interview shortly after the incident, and the impact of it on the Hills was still evident two years later. While Dr. Simon's concerns were centered around the problem of the Hills' anxiety symptoms, he was aware that the UFO aspect might add a new dimension to the case. As far as the existence or non-existence of UFOs itself, the doctor took a neutral position. Since hypnosis is the method of choice for the rapid opening of amnesia, and may be, as Dr. Simon expressed it, the key to the locked room, he planned to use it as part of the therapeutic procedure. The sighting of the UFO had built itself into a subject of tremendous importance to the hills, and the condition of aroused and concentrated attention produced by hypnosis might throw some additional light on their experience. At 8 in the morning on Saturday, January 4, 1964, the Hills arrived at the doctor's office for their first regular visit after the initial consultation. It was to be the first of three sessions in which the doctor would repeatedly induce hypnosis as a conditioning process. During these sessions, both of the Hills responded well, and the doctor was satisfied that they would be good subjects, able to attain the depth of trance desired. The repetition of the process over the three-week period would serve to reinforce the induction and to establish specific post-hypnotic cue words to replace future induction procedures. In this way, the subsequent inductions would be quick and sure. In exploring the amnesia, both the doctor and the patients would be going up a blind alley. 
and the reinforcement of the hypnosis would make it possible to maintain good control in the face of possible emotional disturbances that can arise in such an exploration. Barney's nervousness increased somewhat as he prepared to undergo hypnosis for the first time. Dr. Simon stood him by the large desk in the office, placed his hands at his side, and stood near him, in front of the desk and just in front of a comfortable chair. Dr. Simon began talking to me, Barney later described the process, telling me that I was relaxing, and he had me clasp my hands together, and that they would be tight, tight, very tight, that I couldn't open them no matter how hard I tried, and I was standing there feeling very, very foolish, because I thought, if this is hypnosis, there's nothing to it. I'm just humoring the man. I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I think he stopped and placed his hands over my eyes so that they would close. I said to myself that I wasn't really hypnotized, and when he told me that I couldn't pull my hands apart, I knew that all I had to do was open my fingers, and I could do it. But I just didn't feel like opening my fingers. I didn't even feel I was asleep. But then I was aware that he was waking me up and asking me how I felt, and I felt very, very good, very calm and comfortable, and I no longer had any fear of hypnosis. The two simple keywords creating rapid induction were repeated several times during the early sessions, along with tests to check the validity and depth of the trance. Some of the customary tests used for this purpose include instructing that the patient's arm be stiff as a bar of steel, testing for insensitivity to pain, and instructing the patient that the operator's finger will feel like a hot poker when he touches them. The subject will pull his hand away in pain, even though the pain is only a suggestion. With Barney and Betty Hill, this aspect of the hypnotic process would be important. The opening up of amnesia requires the use of time regression, wherein the patient's memory becomes vivid and exact details long forgotten to the conscious mind emerge sharply. It is not unusual for persons in hypnosis to recall the name and color of eyes of everyone at his fifth birthday party if so requested, even if that might have taken place decades before. There's also the tendency to relive, recreate, and reenact the time segment being recalled, so that the subject again goes through emotions evolved in the original experience, a process referred to as abreaction. The physician must always be cognizant that in bringing to light unconscious memories and feelings, these may be intolerable to the patient and could lead to serious after-reactions. At times, the subject may emerge from the trance if he feels threatened. He may refuse to go further, or in Barney Hill's case, he may plead to be taken out of the trance without emerging on his own. Often, when the emotional release or ab-reaction comes, the patient feels measurable relief. The doctor's control of the patient during hypnosis is essential. This was to be demonstrated later as the sessions continued. Barney Hill, despite some apprehension, was fascinated by the process. After the first test, Barney would later recall, a curious thing happened. As I got ready for the induction into hypnosis, I looked at my watch. It must have been five minutes after eight, and he gave me the keyword, and I was hypnotized. And as far as time was concerned, I thought he was waking me up immediately. But I looked at my watch and it was after nine. I must have been without consciousness for an hour. And yet it seemed no time at all. I recalled also, just at the beginning of what must have been the trance, that he had poked my hand with something that felt like the bristle of a brush. I asked him if I could see this done. The doctor put me in a trance again and told me to open my eyes in the trance and that I would remember this part of it. Then he took a needle-like instrument and pushed it against my hand, and there was no pain associated with it, except perhaps like a bristle of a brush. In fact, he put considerable pressure on it, and I could feel no pain at all. And I was amazed at that, because I looked at my skin and the needle that had penetrated my skin, and there wasn't any blood. So I began to realize that there were two things that could happen there. One, 
I could be hypnotized and made to forget that I had been hypnotized so that I would awaken and would assume that I hadn't been hypnotized at all. And two, I could be hypnotized, and if I was told I could remember, I would retain a knowledge of all that had taken place under hypnosis. Despite Borney Hill's excellent response to the initial induction, Dr. Simon resolved to stay with his plan of two more sessions, during which Barney and Betty would become more reinforced in the process so that a deep trance would be reached quickly, and the hypnosis could continue without interruption. As with Barney, the doctor found that Betty Hill was also an exceptionally good subject. She would, he found, go into a deep trance easily and respond completely both to the trance and to the post-hypnotic suggestions. The doctor further tested the Hills during the three preliminary sessions with various post-hypnotic suggestions, such as asking them, three minutes after they were awakened, to smoke a cigarette, which would taste so bad that they would have to crush it out. They would be offered another and told that it would be fine, which of course it was. He instructed them, always separately because this would be the method that he would be using in his later sessions, that they would not remember anything, whatever they revealed under hypnosis, unless they were directed to. Until Dr. Simon had the whole story and could assess its emotional effect, he was careful to make sure that the amnesia was reinstalled after each session. This also had the desirable effect of preventing communication between the hills after the sessions that they were to follow, avoiding distortions that might arise from their discussing the material revealed under hypnosis. Later, the memory of what came out under hypnosis would be made available to both through tape recordings or by directing them to remember at a time when this would be therapeutically desirable. The doctor planned to take Barney first, regress him to that fateful night of September 19, 1961, and have him reveal every detail of his trip down from Canada to Portsmouth. Since the trance would provide details of marked clarity, there was a reasonable expectation that Barney would bridge the amnesic gap in his memory under hypnosis. The blocking off of his memory after each session would permit Betty to give her own story in later sessions without being influenced by Barney. Frequently, when a subject is in a deep trance, he cannot recall what has happened during the session when he is brought back into consciousness at the direction of the operator. However, they can recall the material if they are instructed by the operator to do so. With the tests and induction period over, after the third session, the Hills look forward to the start of their therapeutic sessions, with the hope that once and for all the mystery of that night would be cleared up. They were both comfortable and relaxed about the whole hypnotic process now. In fact, they almost came to enjoy its after effects. I can just describe it, Barney later recalled, as if it were like getting into a hot tub of water and soaking, as if every nerve in my body would be pleasant and tingling. It was something I had never been able to achieve before. Just a tingling, pleasant glow, just like a rubdown. But both of them knew that the serious business was about to begin, that a long job lay ahead of them in their search for an end to the anxieties that had been upsetting their lives for so many months. The Hills arrived at the usual early morning hour at Dr. Simon's office on February the 22nd, 1964. Betty, realizing that she would merely be going to have her induction reinforced, and Barney, ready to make his excursion into the unknown. The doctor's procedure was clear for this session. After he reinforced Betty, the simple process of rehypnotizing her so that she would maintain her capacity for the deep trance state when the time of her sessions came later, he would then have Barney go back to the night of the journey and retrace it in detail. A psychologically determined amnesia 
is commonly the loss of memory for painful ideas or experiences that serves to keep them out of consciousness. Through the concentration of attention brought on by hypnosis, the opposite of amnesia is often created, which is called hyperamnesia, or superlative memory. In this session, it was hoped that not only would the forgotten time period be recalled, but that the accompanying emotions would be re-experienced. To bring back the recall without the emotions would not serve adequately from the therapeutic point of view of Dr. Simon. For the tape recording of the session, Dr. Simon used a Revere M2 automatic cartridge loading recorder. The cartridges were not only long playing, but they could be stacked ahead of time so that there would be a minimum of interruption during the sessions. When an interruption was necessary, the procedure was simple. The doctor would simply tap Barney on the head, tell him that he would make no sound whatsoever during the intermission period, and then tap him on the head again to continue. A subject under hypnosis has such accuracy of recall and retention that he would continue at the exact point left off, even if in the middle of a sentence. The recall and reliving not only approaches the accuracy of a tape recording, but it may be turned on and off at will by the hypnotist. Further, the subject would take the instruction and questions of the operator in a literal sense. If he asked a question, did you talk to this man? The subject may respond by saying, no, I did not talk to this man. I whispered to him. The preciseness of the response is uncanny. Barney took his seat in front of the doctor's desk. He started to reach for a cigarette, but on the cue words from Dr. Simon, his eyes closed, and his head nodded. His hands were folded across his lap. He looked like anyone who had dozed over their morning paper while he sat in an easy chair. The deep trance was induced, and satisfying himself that Barney was fully in his trance state, the doctor began the session. The conversation was as follows. Doctor, he is completing his reinforcement of the trance. You are deeper and deeper asleep, deep asleep. You will remember everything now, and you will tell me everything. Barney, yes. Doctor, and I want you to tell me in full detail all of your experiences, all of your thoughts, and all of your feelings, beginning with the time you left your hotel. Were you in Montreal? Barney, his voice on the tape is now amazingly flat, monotonous, and trance-like in contrast to his animated tones of normal conversation. He responds to the doctor's questions with bluntness, with little inflection, in a curious monotone, and with measured preciseness. We did not stay in Montreal. We stayed in a motel. Doctor, you stayed in a motel? What was the name of it? Barney, in another city. Doctor, yes, where did you stay? Barney, I can't seem to remember. Doctor, it was near Montreal, though? Barney, it was approximately 112 miles from Montreal. Doctor, is there any reason why you can't remember it? There must be some reason. In such a deep trance, a subject usually recalls many details. Barney, we arrived at night at this motel, and I did not notice any name in the motel. The reason comes out as we expected. Doctor, I see. Do you know what the city was? Barney, it was not a city. It was out in the country. We had been driving from Niagara Falls through Canada. Doctor, keep right on. Tell me about your arrival there. Barney, we arrived in this small area. We did not see any town marks, and my car was making a lot of noise. It was Betty's car that we were driving. I was driving the car. The precision, the almost cumbersome exactness of the phrase is typical of the deep trance state. And I stopped at a service station, and they told me the car had not been properly greased. And so they greased the car, and this eliminated the noise that the car was making. We then decided we could not continue to Montreal, and that we should look for a place to sleep overnight. And that's when I saw this motel, 
and did not pay any attention to the name. The thoughts that were going through my mind were, would they accept me? Because they might say they were filled up, and I wondered if they were going to do this, because I was prejudiced. Doctor, because you were prejudiced? Barney, because they were prejudiced. Doctor, because you were a Negro? Barney, because I am a Negro. Doctor, you've run into that before I take it. Barney, I have not exactly run into being denied a place of accommodation. Doctor, you mean you just worry about it. Barney, but I do know that this does happen, and I was concerned because I was getting tired, and when I went to this place, they immediately accepted me. It cost us $12 for the two of us, and we stayed overnight. Doctor, did you express your concern to your wife? Does she share it? Barney, she does not share my concern about this matter. Doctor, did you express it to her, or did you keep it to yourself? Barney, I do express them to her. Doctor, did you on that night? Barney, I did not. I never expressed them to her when we are seeking a place. Doctor, I see. All right, go on. Barney, we had a little dog with us, and we were told it was a nice little dachshund-type dog, and we could have her in the motel unit. He is, of course, referring to their dog, Delzy, describing her in literal terms. The next morning we got up bright and early, and there was a restaurant across the street, and we decided to eat breakfast. I had my grapefruit, ham, eggs, and coffee. We then are driving along this wide highway. It's a new road. It's a beautiful road. It's four lanes in certain sections. Again, the desire shows itself to fill in every single detail, inconsequential or not. I am coming into Montreal, and I do not particularly like the thoughts of staying here. Doctor. Why not? Barney. It is quite a big city. There's much confusion. There are a lot of trucks on the road. There's quite an amount of traffic. It's building up, and I don't want to stay in Montreal with all of this traffic. I have difficulty in keeping the highway route number I want. Traffic is everywhere, and I decide that we should find a motel if we are going to stay overnight. To my chagrin, all motels are located quite a distance, or to me, I think, a distance from the city. And I am riding. We are riding around, and I see a few other Negroes, and I am amazed. I had not realized there were Negroes in Montreal, and I am quite a distance away from the downtown section, and all the buildings have wrought iron, like stairways on the outside of the buildings, and I pull over to a service station, and I ask how I can get back to my route, and he doesn't understand me, and I realize he doesn't understand English. Barney speaks in the present tense, an indication of the full re-experiencing of the events, rather than the recounting of them. So I put two dollars worth of gas in the car and drive off. I locate a policeman, directing traffic. Doctor, why did you put two dollars worth of gas in the car instead of filling it? Barney, I did not want gas when I stopped to ask directions. Doctor, in other words, you felt you ought to repay them. Is that it? Barney, I felt I should do something, and I pull over to the side, and I ask the policeman, how can I find? I keep thinking Route 3. And he does speak English, very haltingly, over the strong accent, but he does give me directions. I'm passing a beautiful school. It's a Catholic school. I see the priest out there. Beautiful rolling grounds. It's sitting on a hill. It's a very beautiful school in Montreal. And again, I miss my turn. Barney continues describing the detail of the trip across Canada and the upper part of Vermont. One fourteen. It's dark. It's not a good road, but it's a short distance to New Hampshire, and I see the signs of Colebrook, and it is welcome. I feel alert. I feel that my trip is over, and I'm on Route 3, and I see Route 3 going to the left and to the right from straight ahead, and I become confused, and I realize I want to go straight and not to the left. 
I decide to stop and check my map, and I turn around and go back to a restaurant I have passed, and I park, and we go in. There is a dark-skinned woman in there, I think dark by Caucasian standards, and I wonder, is she a light-skinned Negro, or is she Indian, or is she white? And she waits on us, and she is not very friendly, and I notice this, and others are there, and they are looking at me and Betty, and they seem to be friendly or pleased, but this dark-skinned woman doesn't. I wonder, then, more so, is she a Negro, and wonder if she is wondering if I know she is Negro, and is passing for white. I eat a hamburger, and I become impatient with Betty to not drink her coffee so we can get started, and the clock on my watch says five minutes after ten, and I know I should be in Portsmouth, I think by two o'clock. Doctor, didn't you just say a little while ago it was one ten or one fifteen? Barney, I said route one one four. Doctor, I see. All right, go on. Barney, I see dark, very dark, no traffic, and Betty has asked me to stop the car and let Delsey out. She's the dog. Doctor, why is she named Delsey? Barney, I think the people that owned her before called her Dulce, and Betty called her Delsey, and that became her name. Doctor, go on. You stop to take Dulce out. Barney, my thoughts keep going back to Canada. I stop in Codicook, Canada. Doctor, yes? Barney, I can't park close to this restaurant, so I park on the street, and we must walk to the restaurant, and everybody on the street passing us is looking and we go into this restaurant, and all eyes are upon us, and I see what I call the stereotype of the hoodlum, the ducktail haircut, and I immediately go on guard against any hostility, and no one says anything to me, and we are served. Doctor, now this other restaurant you were in, that was in Canada? Barney, that was in Colebrook, New Hampshire. Doctor, how is it that your thoughts go back to Canada? Is this a memory you're having again? Barney, I just went back. I went back because when Betty was telling me to stop the car when we left Colebrook, New Hampshire, and we were now in the country part, I was thinking that I should get hold of myself, and not think of everyone as being hostile, or rather suspect hostility, when there was no hostility there. It was a very pleasant restaurant, the people were friendly, and I was wondering why this was so important to me, and why was I ready to be defensive just because these boys were wearing this style of haircut. Doctor, just your thoughts went back to Canada. Barney, yes, I was thinking of that when we were in New Hampshire. When she asked me to stop and let the dog go for a walk, that's when my thoughts went back. Here, shortly before the sighting, Barney reveals again his apprehension, his ambivalence with respect to his acceptance by others, his need for reassurance. The seemingly unfriendly waitress pressed him to seek a reassuring one. Colebrook, the unfriendly, perhaps by a clang association, a psychiatric term involving similar sounds, which conjure up associations, invoked Kodakuk. Barney. He continues to describe the drive down U.S. Route 3 in the vicinity of Lancaster, New Hampshire. In his recall, he first brings up the object in the sky. I look up through the windshield of the car, and I see a star. That's funny. But I said, Betty, that's a satellite. And then I pulled over to the side of the road, and Betty jumped out her side with the binoculars, and I got the chain and I hook it to the dog on her collar, and I say, Come on, Delsey, let's get out, and she jumps out. Barney is mixing present and past tenses now, varying probably with the intensity of his feelings. And I look towards the sky, and I look back to Delsey, and I walk her around to the trunk of the car, and I'm saying, Hurry up, Betty, so I can get a look. And Betty passes the binoculars to me, and I see that it is not a satellite, it is a plane, 
and I tell Betty this and give the binoculars back to her, and I am satisfied. Doctor, what kind of plane was it? Barney, I look and it is to the right, and it does not go where I thought it would go. It does not go past me from the right, my right shoulder. I think it will pass my right shoulder, off in the distance, going to the north. I am facing west, and my right is to the north, and it does not go to the north. There's a faint trace of amazement beginning to come into his voice. From his tone, you can feel him reliving, not retelling his story. Doctor, does it have propellers? Barney, and I think this is strange. I cannot tell. I cannot hear a motor to know if it has propellers. Doctor, was your engine running? Barney, my engine was running. Doctor, how about the noise that it had been making before you had your car greased? Barney, it was not making this noise and I did not pay attention to my engine running. I was concerned that it would cut off while I was standing here with all the lights on in the car, and the battery would run down, and I was concerned, and I looked at the exhaust, and I could tell that smoke was still coming from the exhaust. Doctor, from the exhaust of? Barney, my car. So I did not concern myself too much after that, and this object that was a plane was not a plane. It was, oh, it was funny. It was coming around towards us. I looked up and down the road, and I thought, how dark it is. What if a bear was to come out? And I worried. I returned to the car, and I said, let's go, Betty. It's nothing but a plane. And they're coming over this way. They're changing course. Probably it's a Piper Cub. Doctor, a Piper Cub would have only one or two windows, wouldn't it? You saw windows in this plane? Barney, this is what I said, and this is what I saw when I returned to my car, a Piper Cub. Doctor, you saw a Piper Cub. Barney. And I drive, and Betty is still looking, and she said, Barney, this is not a plane. It is still following us. And I stop, and I look, and I see it is still out there, off in the distance. So I search for a place to pull off the road, and I see a dirt road to the right of the main highway, and I think this is a good place where I can pull off, and if any car comes, it won't strike me. And I get out of the car, and I am thinking, this is strange. His tone reflects the strangeness now, ominously because it's still there. And Betty said, I think she said, I am mad with her. I say to myself, I believe Betty is trying to make me think this is a flying saucer. And I am wondering why it doesn't go away. And I stop, and I look again, and I see where it has gone up ahead of us on Cannon Mountain. And I think when I get past Old Man of the Mountain, it will be a good area to look and see this thing, and I am going to report it. Doctor, do you still think it was a Piper Cub? Barney, I am wondering why these pilots are military, and they shouldn't do that, and they shouldn't do that. They will make some person have an accident by flying around like that, and what if they dive at me, and the military should not do that? Doctor, was it a single-engine plane? Barney, I do not know. Doctor, you still saw no propellers anywhere? Barney, still in his dead-level voice, I saw no propellers. Doctor, was it light enough to see? Throughout the entire interrogation, the doctor is checking, double-checking, challenging. Barney. It was just a light moving through the sky, and I heard no noise, and I think this is ridiculous. And? He speaks as though Betty were there with him. Betty, this is not a flying saucer. What are you doing this for? You want me to believe in this thing, and I don't. Now he returns to his level monotone. And it is still there, and I wish I could pass a state trooper, or someone, because this is dangerous. Doctor. What was the danger? Barney, I am thinking of bathing in French Creek with my two boys, and this plane came overhead and dove straight for us. 
and it pulled up just a few inches from the state park. The movement of the object in the sky brought to Barney's mind a similar incident with a plane some time before, in which he had a strong emotional reaction. It is interesting how related reminiscences of the past are recalled with the vividness and clarity of the original experience. Doctor, in French Creek? Barney, in Pennsylvania, French Creek, Pennsylvania. Doctor, was it a Piper Cub? Barney, it was a jet plane, a fighter plane, and I felt it in my chest, the explosion when it went up in the air again, and my ears, they felt like bursting, and I think of that, and I become angry with this plane that is flying around, that it might do that, and that it is a frightening sound, the boom. He's referring, of course, to the sonic boom of the jet breaking the sound barrier at French Creek. He is apprehensive of this happening again here in the White Mountains. Doctor, the jet? Barney, yes, French Creek. Doctor, if there is any sound from what you call a Piper Cub, you can hear it now. The subject may hear the sounds of his past experience. Barney, I can't hear any sound. Doctor, no sound whatsoever? Barney, almost plaintively, I want to hear a jet. Oh, I want to hear a jet so badly. I want to hear it. He is referring to the sound of the motor, not the sonic boom. He is anxious to relate this mysterious object to reality. Doctor, why? Why do you want to hear a jet? Barney, because Betty is making me mad. She is making me angry, because she is saying, look at it. It is strange. It is not a plane. Look at it. And I keep thinking, it's got to be. And I want to hear a hum. I want to hear a motor. Doctor, how far away is it? Barney, it was, oh, it wasn't far. It was about a thousand feet, I guess. Doctor, a thousand feet? Barney, one thousand feet. Doctor, if it were a Piper Cub, do you think it would have been silent at that distance? Barney, who is a practiced plane watcher. I do not. I know it is not a Piper Cub. Doctor, pressing hard for facts and inconsistencies. How do you happen to know so much about Piper Cubs? Barney, I thought it was a Piper Cub, because I had seen Piper Cubs landing on the water at Lake Winnipesaukee, and I have seen them with ski landing gear landing on the ice, and I stopped my car, and Betty and I said, look, there's another one, and we enjoyed watching these planes, and I knew I was in the mountain area where I had seen Piper Cubs flying, and I thought this was a Piper Cub. Doctor, all right. Barney, but it was not. It was too fast. It moved too fast. It would go up and down. It could go back so fast. More amazement in his voice, as if he is watching the object do this. It could go away and come back. Doctor, did it go back and forth, or did it go in a circle? Barney, it would go toward the west, and without looking as though it turned, it would come straight back. It would go like a... He gropes momentarily for a simile. I think of a paddle with a ball and a rubber band tied to it, and you hit the ball, and the ball goes out and comes straight back, without a circle, and I think only a jet could fly that fast, and I am hoping I can find a good place where I can stop and really see this thing, whatever it is, and I see a wigwam, and I recognize this place, and I feel safe, and I feel in the barren hostility of the wooded area. He is referring to a commercial trade wigwam, closed now for the season. But in the summer it sold souvenirs of Indian Head at that time. Doctor. What is this place? Barney. It is Indian Head. I had been there before, and I feel comforted that I see a familiar place, and I think I will get a good look at this thing, because Betty was very annoying. She was annoying by telling me, look, and I can't look. I had to drive the car. Doctor. Did you think she was serious? Barney. I knew she was serious. Doctor. Was she excited? 
Barney, and I know Betty only becomes really excited rarely. She does not get involved like I do emotionally as quickly, and so this angered me, because I knew she was excited. It would have been something making her this excited. Doctor, you said you thought she was trying to make you believe this was a flying saucer. Had you talked about them? Barney, no. He is not sure about the doctor's question, so he asks for an explanation. Is this ever or when? Doctor, ever. Barney, yes. We talked about flying saucers, and no one ever said anything conclusive, except that they might exist. Betty said she believed in them. Doctor, did she believe in them? Barney, I felt it wasn't that important. I didn't believe in them. Doctor, but she did? Barney, yes, Betty did believe in flying saucers. Doctor, did she have any reason for believing in them? Barney, her sister. I am thinking of visiting her mother and father in Kingston, New Hampshire, and they live in a nice, quiet area. Only three houses. Her two sisters and her mother's houses are located there. And at night, you can look out to the sky and see millions of stars. And I think how beautiful this is. And we were talking about satellites. The Russians had sent up Sputnik, and her father was talking about, and how you could see some satellites from here at certain hours. And we were talking about flying. We talked about life on other planets. And then Betty's sister said she had seen an object flying, long and cigar-shaped, and smaller objects coming to it and flying away from it. NICAP files record scores of sightings of this kind of report, and we all know about cigar-shaped objects by now, my friends. I listened and I did not criticize, but I thought nothing. I just listened and was indifferent to the conversation, so we did talk about flying saucers, but I have not talked about flying saucers since 1957, when we were talking about Sputnik, and this was 1961. Doctor, well, we're back in 1961 now and you are looking for a place where you can stop and observe this, and Betty has been constantly egging you on. Barney, sharply and suddenly, I want to wake up! This was an indication that the subject may have been about to experience a painful recall, a memory that he cannot face even in the trance. Dr. Simon is alerted at this point to the likelihood of a strong emotional reaction. Doctor, firmly, you're not going to wake up. You're in a deep sleep. You're comfortable, relaxed. This is not going to trouble you. Go on. You can remember everything now. Barney. He is now becoming measurably excited. It's right over my right. God, what is it? His voice begins to tremble. And, and I try to maintain control so Betty cannot tell I am scared. God, I'm scared. Doctor. His voice is calm, very calm, and firm in the face of Barney's mounting emotion. It's all right. You can go on. Experience it. It will not hurt you now. Barney. Breaks into breathless sobbing. Then he screams. I, I gotta get a weapon. He screams again in his chair, his sobs becoming uncontrollable. The doctor is faced with a hard decision now, to impose an amnesia and bring him out of the trance, or to keep him moving through the experience for the ab reaction, or the discharge of that feeling. Further, the amnesic period would appear somewhere in this area, and it had not yet been penetrated. Doctor, very firmly, go to sleep. You can forget now. You've forgotten. He provides Barney with momentary relief. You're calm now, relaxed deeply relaxed. You do not have to make an outcry. Now he brings him back again to the experience. Barney's violent reaction subsides slightly, but he is still breathing heavily. But you can remember it now. Keep remembering. You feel you have to get a weapon. Barney. Yeah, yes. Doctor. This is going to harm you, you felt. Barney. He speaks in great excitement. Yes, yes, I open the trunk of my car. I get the tire wrench, part of the jack, and I get back in the car. 
Again, his panic is rising. Doctor, all right, all right, just keep reasonably calm. Barney, and I keep it by me, and then I get out with the binoculars. Now with quiet terror. And it is there, and I look, and I look, and it's just off over the field, and I think, I think I'm not afraid, and I'm not afraid. But his voice is in terror. I'll fight it off. I'm not afraid. And I walk, and I walk out, and I walk across the road. There it is up there. Oh, God. He breaks into a scream. Doctor, his voice very calm and firm. It's there. You can see it, but it's not going to hurt you. Barney, intensely emotional. Why doesn't it go away? Look at it. An especially loud gasp. There's a man there. Is is he a captain? What is he? He looks at me. Doctor, just a minute. Let's go back a little now. You said it was there. Did you say a thousand feet away? The doctor is referring to the last time Barney mentioned the distance. In the space of time covered by Barney's recall, the object has now moved to slightly more than treetop level, and not more than a few hundred feet away from Barney. He later recalled as he stood in the field. Barney, oh no! Doctor, a thousand yards? No, no, it doesn't look that far. It's very big, and it's not that far, and I can see it tilted towards me. Doctor, what does it look like now? Barney, very hesitantly, as if he's studying the object above him in the sky, but much calmer now, much more objective. It it, it looks like a big pancake with windows and, and, and rows of windows and lights. Not lights, just one huge light. Doctor, rows of windows? Like a commercial plane? Barney, rows of windows. They're not like a commercial plane because they curve around the side of this pancake. And I say to myself, my God, no, I have to shake my head. I, I, I've got... Uh, this can't be true. This isn't here. <sighs> Sighs heavily, almost a moan. Oh, it's still there. There's a fatalistic resignation in his voice. And, and, and I look up and down the road. Can't somebody come? Can't somebody come and tell me this is not here? It, it can't be. But... The doctor. You're still safe. You can see it all very clearly. Barney. With complete resignation. It, it's there. Doctor. Perhaps Barney is dreaming this. The doctor will press this point. You've had no sleep that evening? Barney. I pinch my right arm. It's not my right arm. It's my left arm. I'm confused. Doctor. You're clear now. Relaxed. Barney. With more fatalism in his tone. It's still there. As if an idea strikes him. If I let my binoculars fall and dangle from my neck, and I start over again, maybe it won't be there. Resigned. As he seems to go through this maneuver. A magical defense ritual, like crossing his fingers. But it is, now with incredulity. Why? What do they want? Oh, what do they want? One person looks friendly to me. He's friendly looking, and he's looking at me. Over his right shoulder, and he's smiling. But, but... Doctor, could you see him clearly? Barney, y yes I could. Doctor, what was his face like? What did it make you think of? Barney, I it was round pauses for a moment, and then, I, I think of, uh, I think of a red-headed Irishman. I don't know why. Another pause, and then, I, I, I think I know why, because Irish are usually hostile to Negroes, and when I see a friendly Irish person, I react to him by thinking, I will be friendly, and I think this one, that is looking over his shoulder, is friendly. Doctor, you say looking over his shoulder. Was he facing away from you? Barney, yes, he, he was facing a wall. Doctor, you saw him through the window, and you said there was a row of windows. Barney, he takes care to be extremely precise. There was a row of windows, a huge row of windows. 
only divided by struts or, or structures that prevented it from being one solid big window. And then it, it would have been one solid window. And the evil face on the... He starts to say leader. He, he looks like a German Nazi. He, he's a Nazi. There's a questioning tone in Barney's voice. Doctor, he's a Nazi? Did he have on a uniform? Barney, y yes. Doctor, what kind of uniform? Barney, with a small amount of surprise. He, he had a black scarf around his neck, dangling over his left shoulder. He gestures in his trance. Doctor, you pointed it out as if it were on you. Barney, half to himself. I, I never noticed that before. Doctor, he had a black scarf around his neck? Another sharp probe. How could you see the figure so clearly at that distance? Barney, I was looking at them with binoculars. Doctor, oh, did they have faces like other people? You said one was like a red-headed Irishman. Barney, describing the scene very slowly and carefully. His eyes were slanted. Oh, his eyes, they were slanted, but, but not like a Chinese. Oh, oh, I feel like a rabbit. I feel like a rabbit. Doctor, what do you mean by that? Barney, he recalls a scene from his earlier days, a scene that flashed through his mind as he stood in the dark field at Indian Head, an example of reminiscent recall showing the persistent impact of early experience on the present when similar is emotionally significant. I was hunting for rabbits in Virginia, and this cute little bunny went into a bush that was not very big, and my cousin Marge was on one side of the bush, and I was on the other with a hat, and the poor little bunny thought he was safe, and it tickled me because he was just hiding behind a little stalk, which meant security to him, and then I pounced on him and threw my hat on him and captured the poor little bunny, who thought he was safe. Pauses a moment in quiet reflection. Funny, I thought of that right out there in the field. Repeats the phrase as if to himself. I feel like that rabbit. Doctor, what was Betty doing all this time? Barney, I can't hear her. Later in one of their many trips to the scene, the Hills checked this to find that it was very difficult to hear at the estimated distance Barney was away from the car. Doctor, did you make an outcry to her, the way you did to me? Barney, I, I, I can't remember. Uh, I don't know. An effort to avoid under hypnosis, but he must also remember, and he speaks again as if he realizes this. I, I did not. Doctor, you would remember if you did. Barney, his thoughts seem to be on the craft, and not on what the doctor is saying. Uh, I did not. I, I know this creature is telling me something. Doctor, telling you something? How? How is it getting to you? Barney, I can see it in his face. No, no, his lips are not moving. Doctor, go on. He's telling you something. Barney, his voice begins to rise in emotion again. Strong emotion. And, and he's looking at me, and he's just telling me, don't be afraid. I'm not a bunny. I'm not going to be. I'm going to be safe. He didn't tell me I was that bunny. Doctor, what did he tell you? Barney, as if he's quoting what he was told. Stay there and keep looking. And keep looking and stay there. And just keep looking. And just keep looking. Doctor, could you hear him tell you? Barney. Oh, I, I got the binoculars away from my eyes, because if I don't, I'll just stand there. Doctor, did you hear him tell you this? Barney, oh no, he didn't say it. More tremor in his voice. Doctor, you felt he said it. Barney, very firmly, I know. Doctor, you know he said it? Barney, yes, just stay there, he said. Now his voice breaks in extreme terror. It's pounding in my head. He screams again. I gotta get away. Gotta get away from here. Doctor, quite firmly. All right, all right, calm down. Barney, still breathless. I gotta, gotta get away. Doctor, calm down. How can you be sure he was telling you this? 
Barney. He speaks now with awe. His eyes! His eyes! I've never seen eyes like that before. Doctor, you said they were friendly. No, not the leaders. I said the one looking over his shoulder. Doctor, how did you know the other one was the leader? Barney, in careful, level tones again. Because everybody moved. Everybody was standing there looking at me, but but everybody moved. These levers were in the back, or, or they went to a big board. It looked like a board, and only this one with the black, black shiny jacket and the scarf stayed at the window. Doctor, he had slanted eyes? What did that make you think of? Barney, I, I, I don't know. I, I've never seen eyes slanted like that. He gestures with his hands carefully, in an attempt to describe the eyes. They, they began to be round and, and went back like that and like that, and they went up like that. C can I draw it? Doctor, you want to draw it? Barney, y yes. Doctor, he hands him the materials. I'm giving you a pad and a pencil. You can open your eyes and you can draw whatever you want. You can draw it now. Go ahead. Under deep hypnosis, the subject can open his eyes without in any way disturbing his trance. He still will have no memory of the event when he is awakened, unless the operator tells him he can. Barney Hill is no artist, nor does the trance state enhance his ability. He draws a crude but graphic sketch and hands it back to the doctor. Then he continues the story. Barney, uh, I'm driving. Doctor, you're back in the car now? Barney, yes. Doctor, you put down the binoculars, did you? Barney, I put them down. Doctor, yes, and you got into the car. Did you speak to Betty? Barney, I'm getting a hold of myself. I, I'm saying to myself, remember, you've got fortitude, you can drive a car. And I told Betty to look out, and the object was still around us. I could feel it around us. I, I saw it when we passed by the object. When I got in the car, it had swung around, so that it was out there. I know it was out there. With conviction. Yeah, it's out there. But I don't know where. With genuine surprise. That's funny. Doctor. Yes, speak a little louder. Barney. He complies. The puzzlement is now mounting in his voice considerably. I, I know Route 3. Now another emotional crescendo. Oh! Those eyes! They're in my brain! Very plaintively. Please! Please! Can't I wake up? This is a plea to relieve him of anxiety. Doctor. With reassurance. Stay asleep a little longer. We'll get through this now. Barney is showing signs of more emotion. All right, all right. You'll get through this all right. Follow your feelings. Tell me. They won't upset you. So much now. Barney. Now his voice becomes dreamy and musing. They're there. Isn't that funny? All the woods. That crazy dog. She stays in the car all the time. Isn't that funny? She stays in the car. Doctor. She doesn't bark at anything? Barney. Surprised at Delzy's lack of response. She just stays there. Doctor, what about Betty? Barney, the quiet amazement in his voice is growing now, but his fear has subsided. I, I, I don't know. Doctor, isn't she saying anything? Barney, he is intense, reliving the scene. He doesn't seem to hear the doctor. I, I, I don't understand. Are we being robbed? I, I, I don't know. Doctor, what makes you think you're being robbed? Barney, a significant pause, and then... I know, I know what's in my mind, and I don't want to say it. Doctor, well, you can say it to me. You can say it now. Barney, in total awe. They're men, all with dark jackets, and, and I don't have any money. I don't have anything. Now with great puzzlement. I, I don't know. Now back to awe again. Oh, oh, the eyes are there. Always the eyes are there. And they're telling me. I don't have to be afraid. Now as though he's peering ahead on, on the road. 
Is that an accident down the road? What's the red bright light? Doctor, bright red? Barney, yes, orange and red. Doctor, what is that? Where is that? Barney, right down the road. Doctor, down the road? Barney, again living the scene more than responding to the doctor. And I don't have to be afraid, but they won't talk to me. Doctor, who won't talk to you? Barney, the men. Doctor, in the vehicle? Barney, no, no, they're standing on the road. Doctor, there are men standing in the road? Barney, yes, they won't talk to me. Only the eyes are talking to me. I, I, I don't understand that. Oh, the eyes don't have a body. They're just eyes. He speaks now as if he were moving into another state of consciousness, almost catatonic, as if the eyes were fixated, concentrated completely on another pair of eyes. Then, very suddenly, he speaks with tremendous relief. I know, I know. He muses to himself, yes, that's, that's what it's got to be. He laughs very flatly, very self-assuredly, and quietly. I, I know what it is. It, it, it's a wildcat, a wildcat up a tree. The relief indicated here is intense, as if he were finding something that had a basis of reality, as if he were searching for some explanation for an imponderable phenomenon. Then he is not so sure. No, no, uh, I know what it is. It's the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. Ah, I don't have to be afraid of that. It disappeared too, and only the eyes remained. That's all right. I'm not afraid. Doctor, you didn't see this? Barney, no, I saw it. Doctor, you saw it. You're still seeing this man. Barney, again in his own thoughts. The eyes are telling me don't be afraid. Doctor, that's the leader's eyes? Barney, I, d I don't even see the leader. Doctor, the other eyes. Barney, with certainty, all I see are these eyes. Doctor, the eyes now. Barney, I'm not even afraid that they're not connected to a body. They're just there. They're just up close to me, pressing against my eyes. That's funny. I'm not afraid. Doctor, now what's happening to this vehicle? Barney, I don't see any vehicle. Doctor, it's gone? Barney, it's there. No, it's not gone. But I don't see it. I'm just there. This is, of course, puzzling to the doctor, but he must stay with the patient, live with his thoughts and statements, and try to draw out from him what the patient is seeing and experiencing, without leading him too much and permitting free expression. Doctor, and where are you? Are you in the car? Barney, no, I'm just suspended. I'm just floating about. His voice is now relaxed, relieved. Oh, oh, how funny floating about. Just floating. I, I want to get back to the car. Just floating about. Doctor, you're really floating about? Or is that just the way you feel? Barney, that, that's just the way I feel. Doctor, you're still outside the car? Barney, uh, no. Doctor, you're in the car. Barney, I'm not in the car. I'm not near the car. I'm not in the woods. I'm not on the road. Doctor, well, where are these men? Barney, I don't know. Doctor, on the road? Barney, I, I, I don't know. He persists airily. I'm just floating about. Now he seems to be suspended. He speaks his thoughts at this point as if he's speaking directly to Betty. Heh, heh, Betty. That's the funniest thing, Betty. The funniest thing. I never believed in flying saucers, but but I don't know. Mighty mysterious. Yeah, well, uh, I guess I won't say anything to anybody about this. It's it's too ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, yes, really funny. Wonder where they came from. Uh, oh, gee, 
I wish I had the, uh, I wish I had gone with them. Doctor, you wish you had gone with them? Barney, yes. Uh, oh, what an experience to go to some distant planet. A pause as he reflects, then, maybe this will prove the existence of God. Another brief pause. Isn't that funny? To look for the existence of God on another planet. Now directly as if to Betty. Were you scared? I, I wasn't. No, no, I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid. Anyway, ridiculous. Just you and I here talking about it. Now his tone changes, as if considerable time has elapsed. Something very disturbing is being passed over. This hints strongly at the amnesia gap. Well, it looks as we're getting into Portsmouth a little later than expected. His voice trails off. The doctor waits a moment, decides that this should wait for an evaluation of the effect of the session so far. Doctor, all right, we'll stop there. You will be calm and relaxed. You will forget everything that we have had in this conversation together until I ask you to recall it again. You will forget everything we have talked about until I ask you to recall it again. This repetition was intentional to reinforce the command. It will not trouble you. It will not worry you. You will not be concerned. You will remain comfortable and relaxed, and you will have no pain, no aches, no anxiety. The doctor then reinforces the keywords for future sessions. You will recall what I want you to recall. Do what I tell you to do. You will forget what has transpired here until I ask you to recall it again. You're comfortable and relaxed now. No aches, no pains, no anxiety, all right? Barney, you may wake up now. You'll be comfortable and relaxed. Barney opens his eyes, a little groggy now, but he comes to full consciousness quickly. Barney looks at his wristwatch. Wow, 9.30. Didn't you bring me in here at 10 minutes past 8? Doctor, yes. Barney, where was I? Doctor, right here with me. Barney, where are my cig... Uh, was I about to reach for a cigarette? Doctor, look that way. Go ahead and have one. Barney, I thought I was coming in here and you asked me to take this seat, this chair. Then I was going to reach for a cigarette. I never reached for it. Barney, I feel fine. Doctor, good. Know what happened here? Barney, you put me into a trance. I know the purpose of it, but... There's a pause. Doctor, that's all right. We'll continue this next week, a week from today. And my friends, we too shall continue this in our next episode, and we'll pick it up here, where Barney has just come out of his trance. And folks, as always, we have a quote from the iconic pipe-smoking legend of ufology himself, J. Allen Hynek, and that is that ridicule is not a part of the scientific method, and the public should not be taught that it is. I'll talk to you again next week, my friends, as we continue with the story of Betty and Barney Hill. Stay safe and enjoy your week. <laughs>